Um, hello, everyone. Hello. So last week we looked at John chapter 7. We looked at the first half, I'll say, verses 1 through 24. And today we're going to finish. We're going to look at verses 25 through 52. There's actually one more verse in there, I think, verse 53, but it's just sort of a transition verse into chapter 8. So we're going to finish chapter 7. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. So you might remember when I preached from John chapter 5, there's three major festivals during the year, right? You have Passover, which is in the springtime. You had Pentecost, which was in the summertime. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in autumn, right? Right around this time. Um, and the, the word tabernacle and booth, they're, they're a little bit mis, uh, unfortunate because... Um, you know, when, when you think tabernacle, you think tent, right? And you think of something that you pick up at a sporting goods store. And uh, when you think of booth, you think of like a fireworks booth, or, or I do. Uh, really what, what these were were like what we would call little huts, all right? They would camp out in Jerusalem. They would erect these little shelters. And if you lived in Jerusalem, you were likely to just put up your little booth on the roof of your house. But if you were coming to Jerusalem from somewhere else like Jesus, you would just set up your shelter, your tent, anywhere you could find space. And what were they doing? Why, why would they make this celebration year after year? They were remembering and celebrating God's provision during the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. Now, that's difficult. Well, the biblical age is difficult for us to wrap our heads around anyway, because our modern age is just so far removed from, from that time and how people live. But then when you think about this particular episode, I mean, imagine you're going camping, and it's not for a week, it's not for a month, you're going to go camping for 40 years, and you're not going to be staying in one spot all that time. You're going to be moving from place to place. Now, think about that just from a logistical point of view. Like, we would go out of our minds, most of us. I mean, maybe not Ron Page or uh, Matt Cropley. I won't make fun of you for catching small fish. But most of us would because we'd be thinking, okay, well, how are our kids? Where are our kids going to go to school? Where's the hospital? Where's Super Walmart? Right? 40 years, none of that. And God provided for them all throughout that time, sometimes in miraculous ways, right? So there's two miracles associated with the wilderness wanderings that are highlighted in John's gospel in chapters 6 and 7. So you have the bread from heaven, right? The manna that came down from heaven, and that's highlighted in chapter 6 when Jesus gives his bread of life discourse. Well, there's another episode that happened where Moses struck a rock and water flowed from the rock. This actually happened twice, if I'm not mistaken. It's in Exodus chapter 17, I believe, and Numbers chapter 20. And that is going to provide some of the background for what we're going to be reading today. Keep that picture in your mind. And I like, um, I like what the Swiss theologian, his name is Frederick Godet, has to say about how these Old Testament types are fulfilled in John's Gospel. He writes, in chapter 2, Jesus had presented himself as the true temple. In chapter 3, as the true 
bronze serpent. In chapter 6, as the bread from heaven, the true manna. In chapter 7, he is the rock. In chapter 8, he will be the true luminous cloud until chapter 19, where he will finally realize the type of the paschal lamb. And there was a prophetic passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, where this theme of water flowing from Jerusalem and the Feast of Booths was combined in this, I'll call it an eschatological scene. What, what do I mean by that? Well, in Zechariah chapter 14, and I'm going to go there in just a minute, he gives us this picture of the messianic kingdom. All right, so God's kingdom has been established, and the Lord of hosts is king in Jerusalem. And he talks about how year after year, the nations will come to Jerusalem. And guess when they come? They come during the Feast of Booths. Let me read this passage for us. It's in Zechariah chapter 14. It's the last chapter in his book. I thought I had it marked. Okay, here we go. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. That everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Who is the king? the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the, there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And the theme of the flowing water is highlighted in verse 8 of the same chapter. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. All right. So this is the background here that we need to keep in mind when we're reading John chapter seven. These two significant themes here that are combining. And last week, when I looked at the first half, we focused on two questions, uh, a question about Jesus work on the Sabbath and a question about, yeah, do you hear the birds there? Um, and a question about his authenticity. All right. And, um, I really highlighted verse verse 17. Let me go and read that verse again. Uh, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And uh, as I highlighted that last week, I felt, I felt like I handled this a little bit carelessly. Um, I did not mean to suggest, and I might have come across this way, that our, you know, our reason and our understanding don't have any role to, don't have any serious role to play when it comes to gaining knowledge or apprehending truth. Because of course that's not true. They have a significant role to play. And in fact, when you look at verses 21 through 24, Jesus, again, he makes an argument to his audience and he says to them basically, look, if it's okay to circumcise someone on the Sabbath, it ought to be okay to heal them, right? He's appealing to their reason, and that's 
you know, what am I doing right now in some sense if I'm not also making appeals to your reason and understanding? But when it comes to the specific issue of recognizing God's voice, when it comes to that specific issue, the will has a very important role to play. And that's why I wanted to highlight that. And I like what F.D. Bruner says about verse 17. One simple way to know the authenticity of Jesus is to want and then to try to do the will of the God that Jesus claims to represent. This experiment, when tried as disciples for centuries attest, is wonderfully affirming. Christians learn rather soon that seeking to do Jesus' teaching is really the only way to live responsibly. And this living truth increasingly confirms the truth of Jesus to them. The test of the pudding is the taste. The disciples have repeatedly tasted and been satisfied. And then John Calvin in his commentary on the same verse writes, This statement is highly worthy of observation. Satan, who continually plots against us and spreads his nets in every direction, that he may take us unawares by his delusions, here Christ most excellently forewarns us to beware of exposing ourselves to any of his imposters, assuring us that if we are prepared to obey God, he will never fail to illuminate us by the light of his spirit. All right? So that was the main thrust of what I was trying to say last week. Now this week we're going to be looking at two other questions concerning Jesus. We're going to be looking about the question of where he's from, and the question of where he's going. So let me begin with verse 25 here of chapter 7 in John's Gospel. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So last week, remember, we mentioned how there was a crowd there in Jerusalem. And we know that some of the crowd really was plotting to kill Jesus. But some of the crowd probably consisted of pilgrims who had no idea of this plot to kill him. But now we're learning there's a third group. This is a really mixed bag. There's a third group who know about the plot. They're not necessarily in on it. And they see Jesus speaking and they're saying, okay, well, this is the guy they want to arrest and kill, why aren't they doing anything to him? Let me pick it up again, verse 28. So, uh, sorry, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, a long time ago, when I preached from John chapter 2, we ran into this word, hour. And I told you to keep your eyes peeled, because we we're going to see it again. And here it comes again. In John chapter 7. In John chapter 2, it was uh, Mary coming to Jesus, making a request of him. And he said in response, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. My hour has not yet come. And now we find it again in John chapter 7 when they're trying to arrest him. He's, he's saying that his hour, John, 
is saying that his hour has not yet come. So in other words, there's an appointed time. The hour is his passion, right? The time of his passion. That has been appointed and fixed by God. And what John is trying to show us here is that there's no human activity whatsoever that is going to alter that, in, that appointed time. It's going to come when God has ordained it to come. And they can try to arrest him. They can try to kill him. But nothing's going to make that hour come before it's appointed time. All right? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. Praise the Lord. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, pardon me, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember what we talked about at the beginning. Tabernacles, living water. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, if the Christ is to come from um, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, "Why did you not bring him?" The officer said, "No one." ever spoke like this man the pharisees answered them have you also been deceived pretty ironic that they're asking that question have any of the authorities or the pharisees believed in him but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So there's two theories about the Messiah that are given to us in John's gospel here uh, that the people have. Well, the first one is in verse 27. Uh, but we know where this man comes from and where and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So according to this theory... When the Messiah arrives on the scene, it'll be like he just comes out of nowhere, sort of like Melchizedek in, in the Old Testament. You know, no one knows where he's from. No one knows where he came from. He's just there on the scene almost without any kind of explanation. That, that's the one that we're not so familiar with. The other theory is the more 
the more familiar one that is raised in um, verse 41 and 42. Uh, for, verse 42 has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. And so the crowd is convinced that no matter which theory you, you cling to, Jesus doesn't fit the description because they are convinced that he comes from Galilee and they are probably assuming that he was born in Nazareth of Galilee. And they are not impressed. They are not impressed with Galilee. They are not impressed with Nazareth. I mean, you remember how Nathaniel responded in John chapter 1 when the disciples came to him and said, look, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, nothing good will come from that toilet, Nazareth. So don't talk to me about a prophet or a Messiah from Nazareth. But what's interesting about Nathaniel is Jesus has one small conversation with him, and he immediately turns around. This crowd is a little bit more stubborn, especially the Jewish authorities. But interestingly enough, there's one of these authorities that has real sympathy with Jesus and his message. And who is it? It's Nicodemus, who we encountered in John chapter 3. And so when he figures out uh, that they want to arrest him, he's saying, okay, look, guys, this this is not right because you're, you're posturing yourselves as guardians of the law here, and yet you're violating the law by condemning this man without giving him a hearing. So he clearly shows them that they are in the wrong, and the only thing they can respond with is, shut up. That's, that's, their own, that's their only response. Go, go look. I mean, they have an encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures, but they don't know who God is. And this comes back, in my mind, to verse 17. They're, they're, they're clearly their will is not in harmony with God's will. They want to murder Jesus. They want to arrest him without a cause. And they are deaf to God's voice. But the irony of all this is they are wrong. Ooh. They are wrong that Jesus, okay, he, he did, he was raised in Nazareth, but Jesus, as we know, actually was born in Bethlehem. This is multiply attested in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Both of those infancy narratives, and Matthew wasn't depending on Luke, and Luke wasn't depending on Matthew. Those don't come from the same source, so we have multiple independent attestation. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, however, when you look at John's gospel, he doesn't really focus on that. Uh, John, John's burden is to show that, you know, ultimately Jesus is from above. That's what John wants to, to focus on. It's, it's not that he's from some town here on the earth. Jesus is from heaven. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what John wants to do, take us all the way back to the beginning and say, that's where Jesus is from. And of course, when Jesus tells people that he's from the Father, that's when they, they get really upset and they want to arrest him. All right? So there's the question of where does Jesus come from? What about this other question? Where is Jesus going? This is picked up in verses 33 through 36. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Uh, we're going to come back to that verse in a little bit. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks 
and teach the Greeks. And so we can see the audience is consistently doing here what Jesus told them not to do in verse 24. He told them, look, don't be so superficial. Don't judge things according to the appearance, but dig a little deeper and judge righteous judgment. And they are they just completely ignored it. And they say something here that's that in their mind, it's almost kind of facetious. It's like, okay, so Jesus, once he fails to convince the people in Jerusalem that he's the Messiah, what's he going to do? Is he going to go to the Greeks and the Gentiles and convince them that he's the Messiah? And the answer to that question is, yes, he will. <laughs> they don't know it. But yeah, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to come on his disciples. They are going to go to the Greeks and the Gentiles. And many of them are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So, so they, they have unwittingly spoken the truth here. And then we get to what is the crowning gem here of, of John chapter 7. Verses 37 and 38, where we, we find one of the most simple and one of the most profound expressions of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. It's absolutely beautiful. So there they are at the Feast of Tabernacles, right? This is a seven-day thing. And uh, according to what I've, I've read and researched here, they had a solemn ceremony that they enacted on each of these days where, where the priest with a, um, a procession following him would go down to the southeastern part of the Temple Hill where there was a fountain, okay? And he had, a, he had a pitcher with him, a golden pitcher. He would collect water from this fountain. Then the priest, with this procession singing songs, would make their way back up to the temple precincts. And then the priest at the altar of uh, burnt sacrifice would take this water and he would pour it out. And this was like almost like a prayer of seeking God's favor for the rains that were so vital for the agriculture, right? And they would do this each of the seven days. But on the seventh day, they would circle around the altar seven times. And then the water would be poured out. And it's, it's almost, it's very likely that it's at this point in the feast that Jesus stands up and, and, make, and says these words. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So it does not say, let anyone who is qualified. He does not say, let anyone who is disciplined enough, anyone who is mature enough, let anyone who is worthy. There's one, there's one condition here that Jesus talks about. He says, anyone who is thirsty. And then in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, here's what's scary about this passage of scripture. It's verse 33. I want to take you back to verse 33 for a second. And I didn't really notice this until I was, I was prepping for this sermon. This, this, was, uh, this passed me by for the longest time. But Jesus says here in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Actually, it's verse 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. 
Now, compare compare what Jesus says here, for example, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. When he says, seek and you will find, right? I mean, in that, in that verse, the seeking is the pledge of the finding. If you are seeking, that is the guarantee you are going to find, all right? And you can look at uh, Jeremiah, his words to the Babylonian exiles in chapter 29, verse 13. When, when God says to them, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There again, the seeking is the pledge of the finding, but we encounter something different here. This, this terrible prospect that people are going to be seeking Jesus and they will not find him. Like he's telling his audience, he's emphasizing that there's, there's a window of opportunity here, guys, to receive the word of life. And the word of life has been set before them. And he's saying you need to seize the opportunity when it comes because at some point, some point, that window is going to close. You know, when you, when you live in the world that we live in, uh, you, you do need to develop a certain degree of skepticism, all right? I, I mean, that's that's plain. Um, why? Because we have people that are constantly trying to take advantage of us. Um, sometimes they're not very good at it, by the way. I mean, I get uh, text messages almost every day from someone I don't know who has a weight loss program for me. Now, if you look at me, I've got, I've got problems. <laughs> that's not one of them, okay? And uh, my wife, she wants me to gain weight. She would feel a lot better if I gained about 30 pounds, okay? But that that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? You get these emails. Oh, there's something wrong with your Amazon account. Send us all your information and we'll fix it. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. Uh, or your PayPal account or whatever it is. So you have, to have, you have to have a certain degree of skepticism. You can't just take everything at face value. Okay, that, that's plain. But at a certain point, at a certain point, that healthy skepticism will turn on you. And it will become a lethal dose of skepticism. All right? Jesus is standing before these people, and he has provided them with sufficient grounds for believing in him. I mean, uh, again, I'll, I'll point to Nathaniel. If Nathaniel had sufficient grounds for believing in him, this crowd definitely has sufficient grounds for believing in him. And some of them do, but for some of them, all they can do is come up with excuses and objections. So they say, oh, well, but he was healing on the Sabbath. I don't know about healing on the Sabbath. That seems weird. And, oh, he's not a licensed preacher. He didn't study under a rabbi. That's not, I don't know about that. And, oh, I, well, he comes from he comes from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. I mean, just... Just excuse after excuse, objection after objection. Why? Because they're not going to be hoodwinked, right? They're not going to be taken in. They're not going to be bamboozled because they are so wise. But you, you know uh, who's not as wise? The broken. The, the, the weary. The, the people are just going, God, I'm just tired of it. Tired of, of living in this world and trying to trying to figure out everything on my own, and I'm, I'm tired of fighting everybody and everything in it. 
I'm just, I'm, and I'm thirsty. I want meaning. I want purpose. I want God. I want that living water. And when Jesus, he stands up and he says, anyone who is thirsty, come. They don't respond with excuses. They don't respond with objections. They respond with faith. Amen. And their reward is life ever. Why is it so hard, church? The gospel is so simple. Anyone who is thirsty, come. Wow. Come. Call upon the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. It's that easy. It's that easy, church. But don't take my word for it. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Amen. And what does Jesus promise? Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living waters. Let's pray. Ah. Holy Father in heaven, what a beautiful day you've given us today. Yes. What a beautiful word you have for us. And God, I just want to lift up everyone, everyone here this morning. We want to rebuke every stronghold of the devil. Anything that's standing in your children's way from hearing your voice, Lord, we just rebuke it. We cast it out in the power of your name. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will prepare the soil to receive your word of life and open doors for us to speak that word. And we want to see you exalted here in the city of Ridgecrest. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see any anybody who's here right now is dealing with frustration and discouragement. Anyone. We, I, I pray, Lord, that they will call upon your name today, that they will reach out to you. Those who are thirsty and hungry, Lord, and we pray that they'll receive your word of life and put their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.